This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 191, More Time Travel. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. No, you're not experiencing deja vu. Maybe we'll do that in another episode. For now, we're just examining more ways that cracking the space-time continuum affects your daily life as a Christian. Today, we'll cover whether going back to see Jesus' signs and wonders would give you an advantage, the prophet H.G. Wells and the lesson that famous atheist can teach us about the church, how the fastest man alive may be also the slowest, and how yet again we managed to make it all about us. Let's start with what I've been preaching. Sometimes the Bible tells us things that seem completely impossible. Maybe it's the six-day creation. Maybe it's the virgin birth. Or maybe it's the advantages other people have over us the Bible insists are not advantages at all. I'm speaking here of the signs and wonders witnessed by some people in Bible times, the kind of signs that have ceased in our day. Open parenthesis. I do not want to get dragged down into a conversation here about whether miracles occur today. I find the word miracle to be almost impossible to define. Some say it was a miracle that their team came from three touchdowns behind in the fourth quarter to win the game. Some say it was a miracle they got to the airport in time for their flight. Some say every childbirth is a miracle. I'm not complaining about those uses of the word, mind you. I'm just pointing out that arguing about whether miracles exist in the modern day is an exercise in futility. Maybe we'll deal with miracles in a future episode. Not today, though. End parenthesis. Signs were given in Bible times to confirm the word given by a prophet. Jesus appeals to the power of signs with reference to his own teaching in John 5, verse 36. People saw things that defied logic, and they were moved to pay special attention to the prophet. That makes perfect sense. Of course, people would find faith in such circumstances. But our circumstances are different. The Spirit does not move in the same way as in Bible times. Even the charismatics would agree with that. So how can a God who claims to be no respecter of persons, according to Acts 10.34 and many other passages, expect us to find faith without the signs that so many others received? And make no mistake, the Bible does not give us an escape clause here. Jesus told Thomas some would come to faith without signs in John 20, verse 29, and said they were blessed. Passages such as Romans 2.16, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Revelation 20.12, and countless others tell us everyone will be held accountable. No excuses. I believe what the Bible says, and I reject the I didn't see any signs argument. Here are a few reasons why. Firstly, Plenty of people in Bible times saw no signs at all and found faith anyway. John never performed a single sign, according to what the people said in John 10.41. Yet hordes of people flocked to his teaching, because it was true, and because some people were seeking the truth, just like today. Also, some people saw signs and chose not to believe. It may boggle our minds that, for instance, people who heard of the raising of Lazarus from the dead not only refused to believe in Jesus, but even plotted to have Lazarus assassinated. But that's what we read in John 12.10. Eventually, Jesus quit performing signs, at least in some quarters, because they were going unheeded by those who were determined to reject him. Only the sign of Jonah, meaning his own resurrection, would be given to such ones. He said in Matthew 12, 39. And I'll point out, at least in brief, that not all the so-called signs in Bible times led people to the true faith. Paul writes about signs and false wonders and the workers of Satan who would do them in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9. In Matthew 24, 24, Jesus himself said such ones would appear. The convincing nature of the so-called sign was never the main point. 
Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, and John 4, 1 both put the onus on the observer to test the Spirit by examining the doctrine being presented. One who rejects God's revealed word cannot possibly be from God. You and I can do that just as well as they could, better in fact, since we have the entire Bible in our hands. In the end, the quest for faith has always been exactly the same in every generation. There are those who search for God and find Him, like Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17.27, and there are those who don't. To be perfectly blunt about it, people who insist on signs as precursors to faith are either dishonest, like Jesus' opponents in His day, or just plain lazy. A faith that is spoon-fed to you, perhaps even against your own will, is not faith at all. If you are truly seeking God, you'll quit fussing about what God is doing on His end and focus more on what you're doing on your end. As Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. This is what I've been reading. Science fiction has always been about creating a view of present circumstances from a future vantage point. Whether it's artificial intelligence in iRobot, religious fascism in The Handmaid's Tale, nuclear apocalypse in I Am Legend, or ecological disaster in WALL-E, it's all the same. This is the road we're on, and this is where that road ends. H.G. Wells basically invented this motif in The Time Machine. The unnamed time traveler goes 80,000 years into the future and finds a reality starkly different from his own, and yet eerily similar. The human race has evolved into two distinct species. One, the surface dwellers called the Eloi, are blissfully happy, living carefree lives, and yet are hopelessly stupid, incompetent, and helpless, trusting the mysterious machines of their world to sustain their lives. The Morlocks, who live underground and who built and maintain the machines, are the exact opposite ugly, violent, completely amoral, and prone to occasionally kidnapping some of the alloy and eating them. For Wells, in turn-of-the-century England, this showed the gap between the classes that he observed. One group doing all the work, the other enjoying all the benefits. Such a model was completely unsustainable and doomed to disaster in his eyes. And he was right. A house divided cannot stand, to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, who was himself paraphrasing Jesus Christ. If we are to exist as a society, we must find commonality that transcends whatever differences may separate us. If we define ourselves by our classes and subcultures, we will tear ourselves apart from the inside. The conceit of Star Trek, just about the only view of the future in popular culture that is optimistic, is that space travel convinces all Earth dwellers that ultimately we have far more in common than we have points of distinction. But even Star Trek devolves into an us-versus-them situation. It's just that instead of America versus the Russians, it's the humans versus the Borg or the Romulans or whatever weird villains they throw at us. The reason people today call H.G. Wells a prophet is that he serves the same role for our earthbound society as the actual prophets of Yahweh served in times past for his people. This is where you are. This is where you're going. This is what will happen as a result. Repent or perish. Moses, Elijah, Amos, Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, John the Baptist, and dozens of others in between. They all sang the same song from the same hymnal, mostly for audiences that ignored them. The results were entirely predictable. We in the Lord's Church today have the same insight into the future that previous generations had. The warnings given to the readers of the New Testament work the same way that the works of the prophets worked for the Israelites of old. 
God is mining the machine on an irresistible path toward a predetermined end. Occasionally, or maybe not so occasionally, we gum up the works. If we vary too far from the future God has planned for us, we bring doom upon ourselves. It's God making adjustments along the way, and the machine keeps on humming. Whether the application is your own life as an individual, the society you're living in, the Church of Jesus Christ as a whole, or humanity at large, the cycle continues to repeat itself until, one day, the future finally meets with the present. That is why we must take the warnings of passages such as 2 Timothy 3 so seriously. The list of character flaws we see in these false teachers runs rampant in society today and in the church as well. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, the list goes on and on. It sounds like today's headlines. Following the path that such ones are carving out for you will end in disaster. It can't possibly not end in disaster. So don't follow that path. Do as Paul says, follow his example, endure persecution, persevere in good behavior. And above all, devote yourself to the scripture. Paul tells us it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And if you think Christians are above such things, you haven't been paying attention. We have plenty of Morlocks on church rolls even today. Paul warns about them in Galatians 5, verse 15. Some had chosen selfishness over brotherly love, and the church was going to pay the penalty for it. He writes, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Love your neighbor. It really is that simple. And when you're done loving him, love him some more. The future of the church depends on it. This is what I've been hearing. One of my favorite comic books growing up was The Flash. Batman was just a rich guy with gadgets. Superman was way too much over the top. But one power, super speed, incredibly practical, incredibly powerful, cool looking suit to boot, that's what I like. So when the CW started up the Flash TV show, I got on board and I liked it for a while. Interesting side characters, interesting backstory, a bad guy hiding in plain view, it had all the makings. But let me flesh out the Flash's backstory a bit and then explain why I quit watching. In this version of the Flash narrative, Barry Allen watched his mother get murdered when he was just a child. His father was convicted of the crime. But Barry saw it all happen and his father had nothing to do with it. No one was there with her, just a blur of color. Turns out the blur was a super speedster who had gone back in time to do the deed. Eventually, Barry learns how to travel through time himself as well. He is tempted to save his mother on a trip to the past. But he comes to realize disrupting time like that will create negative consequences far greater than any good he might accomplish. Great. Lesson learned. Painful but important. That's what superhero stories are all about. Except a season or so later, he decides to go back again. And this time he actually does save her. And sure enough, bad things happen just like they were supposed to. They spend a season sorting it out. And then he finds another reason to change the past. More bad things happen. It's not just Barry who's going back in time. We're going back in time too. Reliving the same idiotic choices over and over again. So since it appeared Flash was not going to break the loop, I did it by turning off the TV. Rarely a poor choice in my experience. And I gather from the little bit of information that's fallen into my path over the years, the show continued to be plagued by similar plot problems. Bottom line, changing the past is impossible. And if somehow it were proven to be possible, 
it would still be a horrible idea. I covered this point during the previous time travel episode. I won't make the same points here again. I do, however, want to spend a bit of time on the process of learning the lessons of experience. Time and opportunity should make us better at pretty much everything we do. But sometimes we quit before we see the desired results. Whether that's a good thing or bad thing depends on the nature of the issue at hand. Anyway, here's how the process should work. Step one, we need to determine what behavior of ours may have led to the mistake. And I have bad news for you here. There is almost certainly a mistake to be found. But this is a good thing. I'll repeat that. This is a good thing. When the mistake is yours, you have control. You can do better, at least try to. What kind of an idiot is going to sit stewing in an uncomfortable situation, blaming other people for his problems, and not even trying to see what he could do to improve? The answer is, a lot of your neighbors. Don't be that guy. Find a way to improve. It's there, I promise. Then, step two. You do what my economics professor used to call a cost-benefit analysis. Determine what is to be gained by making an adjustment and determine how difficult, costly, or objectionable it would be to make that adjustment. The holiday turkey comes out dry, for instance. Is it worth $20 to me to get a turkey brining kit off Amazon? Maybe so. Is it worth $200 to get a fryer I'll use once a year? Or $1,000 for a pellet grill to do it right? Hal Hammond's famous tightwad, do you know anything at all about me? Anyway, if the cost is worth the result, pay the cost and don't fuss about it. If not... Make do with what you have, and don't fuss about it. Either way, you've taken control of your world, or at least a small part of it. If you stick with the status quo, you can skip step three. But step three is critical if you're making adjustments. Step three is go back to step one with the new set of circumstances and start all over again. It may be that you hit a home run on your first time at bat. More likely, though, you'll have to rinse and repeat a couple of times. That'll get costly in every sense of the word. The number of times you repeat this process will tell you how important it is for you to get this particular thing right. So let's say you don't get along with a particular brother in Christ. Is it worth the trouble of fixing the relationship? Or do you sit in the corner for the next 20 years blaming him? Jesus says in Matthew 5.24, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Okay, fine, but what if that doesn't work? Well, how much do you love your brother? Enough to forgive him? Enough to forgive him seven times. How about 70 times seven? And while you're rinsing and repeating for what seems like the 489th time, consider how much God loves you. How many times he forgave you? 1 John 4, 7 reads, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The more you show love, the more you connect with the one who loves you. Surely that knowledge will embolden us to give patience and brotherly love another try. Barry was determined to change things that cannot and should not change. The more he kicked against the goad, the more it hurt himself and those he loved. God is trying to teach you that the future is largely what you make of it. No, you can't change your past, but you can direct your future. So if it's truly important to you, make your best effort. Then figure out what you can do better and make an even better effort the next time and the next. Keep going until you get it right. And if you never get it right, keep going anyway. 
The good stuff in this life is always worth the extra effort. This is what I've been playing. When gamers talk about a theme in a game, they refer to the universe the game creates. You're the lord of the manor in 18th century England, or a farmer in 19th century China, or a titan of industry in 20th century America. Actually, that's a bit of time travel right there, isn't it? A very strong theme really can make all the difference in your game playing experience. And that brings me to Steam Time, one of, I think, only two time travel games we have owned. The other is Chrononauts, which I discussed a couple of years ago. In Steam Time, you are one of several engineers attempting to build time machines. These machines will help you explore the past to discover lost knowledge, banished cultures, hidden treasures, all that good board gamey kind of stuff. I'll be honest with you. I would never have known any of that unless I had read it from the description provided by the designers. This game feels like going back in time the same way that eating Chef Boyardee ravioli feels like traveling to Italy. It's a fine game, just not very thematic. That's one of the reasons we gave the game away a few years ago. The whole point in a game like this is to maximize your own success, often at the expense of your neighbor. You're keeping score, after all. If you're just interested in what will happen, apart from how you measure up to others, just buy everyone in your family a set of Legos or Tinker Toys and be done with it. For the Hammonds family, the whole point of gaming is winning. And frankly, I'm not all that interested in how well or how poorly you're doing on your side of the game table, just as long as I'm doing better. Steam time is not about the greater good. It's about my good versus your good. And it strikes me that almost all the time travel stories have egotism, selfishness, or both at their core. Things didn't turn out like I wanted or like I think they should be. So I will go back in time and fix it. And by fix it, I mean work things out for my own personal benefit. The absolute worst example of this is in Superman the movie, the one from the 70s with Christopher Reeve. His father told him specifically that he was not allowed to alter time. But when Lois Lane dies, all the rules go out the window. Back to the Future 2 is much better. Marty McFly thinks he can get rich by bringing future sports results back with him so that he can get rich gambling. But it goes awry, of course, and everyone becomes the wiser for it. Whether or not you're traveling through time in a souped-up DeLorean, there is more to this life than simply milking it for all the personal satisfaction you can get. What if going through time resulted in you getting the marriage of your dreams but robbed someone else of theirs? What if liquidating your 401k in 2019 made the economic downturn come even harder and faster for everyone else? Personally, I'd love to go back and rescue our dog Samson, who the SBCA gave away after we told them we were coming to pick him up, But then, some other family would have been deprived of a fantastic dog through no fault of their own. Why is my welfare more important than theirs? We are all on the same spaceship, hurtling through time together. We all have our individual goals and objectives, and that's fine. But if we're going to arrive at our destination without crashing, we would do well to consider one another along the way. Take the local fellowship of believers, for instance. In the United States, you likely have more than one convenient congregation. If so, the inevitable conversation centers around which is the right church for us. But what if we reversed that? What if instead of seeing where our own needs would be best served, we looked for a place where we could serve more effectively? Instead of getting our children to join an active group their own age, they could help form one. Instead of seeking friends our own age, we could encourage those who are older or younger. Instead of making sure I get to lead in worship as much as I would like, 
I can encourage those who do. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 14, 27, let all things be done for edification. What's good for the church is good for you. And what's good for your brother is good for the church. We have to get past this notion that what's right for me is the ultimate consideration. It's not. It's not even number two. What's right for the gospel and the cause of Christ will always be number one. And according to Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, our brethren should be next in line. Paul told us, do nothing through selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are from the devil, not the Lord, according to James three fourteen. So find a way to put them aside. Join forces with your brethren, especially the ones who seem to be struggling a bit. It's what's best for the church. It's what's best for the gospel. And in the long run, it's what's best for you. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.